As we make our way through the best story ever, that is the story of the scriptures, we have now made our way to the book of Joshua. And if you do not have a handout, um, go ahead and raise your hand and the Whitakers are passing those out. Sometimes the handouts are, they really, um, they have some blanks that are meaningful this morning. Um, if you pay attention to the handout, you're going to realize that you can figure out every blank without me saying a word. Um, but that's okay. That's just the way it works this morning. So the Bible is the best story ever, and we've made our way to Joshua this morning. And Joshua reminds, as we come into Joshua, it reminds me of Jehachapi Pass. And I mentioned this to you um, in a previous sermon. I don't remember how long ago, and I don't know if the map is not big enough for you really to see. But there in the bottom, those big letters, that's Los Angeles. Tehachapi Pass is north of Los Angeles in the Bakersfield area. So it's almost in the middle of the map there. And Bakersfield is a pretty large town in its own right, really a city. And I think it's Highway 58, I can't remember now, that heads out of Bakersfield. And it's it's very picturesque. It's it's beautiful. Um, um, You have these rolling hills. You start to climb a hill, and then you go down and up and then down. You're slowly making your way up in the mountains. And there's these rolling, lush green hills with vineyards that are on those hills. It's just a beautiful, picturesque time. And then as you get into the mountain pass, I don't remember how many, it's like five or 6,000 feet, I think it is. And um, it's still pretty green, but within about two or three minutes, you pass from all this beautiful green, and then you pass out on the other side, and you see the valley spread out, and no longer is it green. It is desert brown, my friends. I mean, it is just a stark contrast. You go from these beautiful rolling green hills into just this desert plain. And uh, there's quite a few windmills there as well. And that is the experience we're going to happen that's happening for us here in the book as we pass from Deuteronomy into the book of Joshua. Let me make one distinction, though. Joshua is not the desert land. My point is, is there's just a change of landscape moving from Deuteronomy to the book of Joshua. There is a stark change of landscape. So Joshua feels quite different from Deuteronomy. And really, Joshua feels different from Exodus, um, Leviticus, and Numbers as well. The book of Joshua is primarily narrative. It's primarily covering the story of what happened as the children of Israel occupied the promised land. Genesis and Deuteronomy have been building, building, and climbing, and climbing, and climbing, and getting to that point to where finally they reach the top and they claim the promised land. And some of this building, really, you get on the edge of the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, but Joshua is where you are there and they occupy the land. God had promised his descendants. God had promised, excuse me, Abraham's descendants that his family would turn into a nation and that nation would occupy the land of Canaan or the land that was promised. 
Now, in the best story ever, the story of the scriptures, there are many periods of building, 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 and then arrival. And what we have here with arriving in the promised land in Joshua is just one of those stories. You also have a lot of many stories within the Bible. For example, God God promises Abraham that he's going to have a child, but there's a long period of time where Abraham's awaiting the promised child. And finally, the promised child arrives. And it's a frustrating time for Abraham. And he makes some mistakes as he's trying to realize the promise that God had given him. But he did it the wrong way. But also, when Israel is out of the land, the land of Egypt, and eventually oppressed, there is a time of building, building, building. Is when is God going to hear us and remember us and return us and get us out of this land of bondage and eventually in the book of exodus they realize and they are liberated but still they have not fully realized god's promise and so there's more building 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 and then they arrive in the promised land but then there is that promised messiah in the old testament builds 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 all the way through the old testament until we have in the new testament that promised messiah comes but then we realize from New Testament teaching that that was not the, the only coming of the Messiah. And so there, now we're in a, the age of the new covenant where there's building, 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 building. And someday Jesus is going to return. And he is going to bring us to the ultimate promised destination of the new creation. And so that is the ebb and flow of the best story ever, the story of scriptures. There is these mini dramas that build into the ultimate drama that take us ultimately to the promised destination that we today are still waiting for. Hebrews, in the famous chapter on faith, captures the waiting for, for the ultimate culmination. And he makes this, the author of Hebrews makes this application for us. So I want to look at Hebrews chapter 11 and start in verse 13. Hebrews eleven thirteen 13, it says this, these all died in faith. So the writer of Hebrews had mentioned several of those Old Testament uh, heroes, patriarchs. So Abraham was one of them, but there were others that he had mentioned. He had mentioned Abel as well. And now he's making an application. All these men died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who seek thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them for a city. And that was my last verse. It goes on and on. And Hebrews 11 is beautiful. Someday I'm going to spend a few Sundays in it with you. But as we are building, building, building toward what is happening here with the book of Joshua, the people of God... They finally reached that new destination, the new creation. Excuse me, that new destination of the promised land. And if I'm going to apply it to us today, I am going to apply it to the fact that we are building, building, building. And we are waiting for that day when we will 
arrive in the new creation. And I want to encourage us to rejoice as a people of God that God is taking us to that promised destination. There is a lot of struggle in our lives, and we need to acknowledge it. We need to deal with it in God's strength and his help. But a part of the struggle, my friends, in our Christian lives needs to be a moment of celebration as we recognize that God is faithfully taking us to that promised destination. So that brings us to the Joshua key point. The Bible is the best story ever, and Joshua shows us how the Lord leads his people to a promised destination. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Help me to make them clear. Spirit of God, I rely on you to apply them to our hearts and that we would have hope and celebration, but also context for what we are going through now as we look at what you did then. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Each week I try to decide how I'm going to divide up the sermon. And there's no, there's, the Bible doesn't tell me how to do that. I have to just try to divide up in a way that helps us digest the information. This week I felt the best way to do it is just to take the, the key, Joshua key point and look at the segments of that sentence. Not my normal way of doing it. It's not my preference, but I, I felt like this was best for today. So number one is the Lord. The Lord. And notice that it is capitalized there. That is referring to Yahweh or Jehovah. There's different ways of, of translating it depending on the culture that transliterated the original Hebrew word. Another way that it is translated is Adonai or the word Lord. But this is a special covenant name that God revealed to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 6. And so as you look at the book of Joshua and look at how many times it just calls God God or Elohim, it's only about 72 times. But if you look at how many times it calls the Lord Lord, it's over 200 times. And the reason why I'm making this point, and usually your translations are going to have you know, all capital Lord or um, uh, variations of capital letters to show that this is referring to Yahweh or Jehovah or Adonai or the Lord. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because the emphasis is with using that name for God is the covenant-keeping God, the God who has promised and the God who is taking us on the journey and the God who will get us faithfully to the promised destination. And so when you look at that word LORD in all caps or Yahweh or Jehovah or Adonai, that is emphasizing that covenant-keeping God who will safely lead you through and get you to the promised destination. So last week when we, we looked at Deuteronomy and, and covenant renewal, we spent some time on just looking at God himself, his character, and his works. And we're going to do that a little bit this week. And let me just challenge us that may we never get tired of looking to God is the basis of everything and is a way to ground our mindset and orient our rationale. 
That's not the only reasons the Lord deserves our gaze because he is the Holy One. He is the Great One. He is, there is none other like him. And he deserves our worship. And so as we look at this theme as it pops up in different books of the Bible, may we never grow tired. And if our hearts have grown hard because we're kind of bored with the thought of looking at the Lord, may the Spirit of God rebuke us for that. And so as we look at how we as a people move from brokenness to full restoration in the promised destination of the new creation. It's all about the Lord. Well, last week as we talked about God's character, we talked about his character and his works. This week we're really just going to talk about his works because that is what shines brightly in the book of Joshua. So I want to look at Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Joshua 3, 14 through 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant (coughs) before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is the stuff of children's Sunday school, isn't it? The beauty of the crossing of the Jordan. This this is one of the great works of God in the Old Testament. It's like the exodus in Egypt. As we, as we look at the great things that God did, the exodus from Egypt, the crossing over the Jordan on dry ground, these are some of the great works of God in the Old Testament. And as we pass through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are other mighty works of God. And there are going to be mighty works of God yet in our future. And just a simple application here. I've already hinted towards this. Have you become callous? Have you become hard-hearted to God's mighty works? Have you stopped celebrating God's mighty works? I think the tendency is, is that many of us, including myself, Go through times of hard-heartedness where we don't celebrate God's mighty hand like we should. And so a prayer for us as we're responding to the word of God and we're looking at the works of God in the book of Joshua 
is, Lord, help my heart not to be hard. Soften my heart so I can celebrate your mighty hand. You and I have a heritage of God's mighty works. And God is not done. So, live your life in celebration for the mighty works of God that he has done in the past. And with faith and celebration for the mighty works God will do in the future. So now as we're making our way through this key point of Joshua, we've looked at the first segment, and now we're going to look at the second segment, and that is the Lord leads. The Lord leads. In the past, in Exodus through Deuteronomy, we see God's leadership expressed through Moses. Some would call Moses a covenant mediator. A covenant mediator. And the reason some would call Moses that is because Moses mediated the covenant relationship between the Lord, Yahweh, and his people. He played a key role and God's leadership was expressed through Moses to his people. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate covenant mediator. It was finished through him. Now, in Joshua, the Lord led his people through appointing Joshua and instructing Joshua. And I want to take a look at just a few passages where the Lord does this. First of all, in Joshua chapter 1, starting verse 1. Joshua 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Flip over to chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3 and verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then finally flip over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, starting in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now that I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servants? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Just a sampling of how the Lord led through his servant Joshua. 
We also see, as you just can look at the overall theme and goings on of Joshua chapters 1 through 5, and you see that there is, that God is taking his people through a preparation process. God knows our needs. He knows that we need preparing. And we see that is the people of Israel are getting ready to go in a very per- seemingly perilous situation. We know the story. We know the end. We know how it went down. So we don't have the same feelings that these people had. But they, there was uncertainty and there was a strong measure of faith that they had to have to go through what they went through. And so the Lord is leading them through the preparation that you see taking place in those five chapters. Let me just say that it's a complicated process of leading people. And God is the best leader ever. But let me just say that leading people is complicated. I'm going to make some application here, but I want to be careful. When there is bad leadership, it should not be excused and it should be held accountable. But what we see here in Joshua in the application I want to make in a positive way is that we should also not lose faith in God to use imperfect people as his leaders. And God used the imperfect leadership of Joshua in a great way to help these people arrive at the promised destination. And if you read later on in Joshua, we're not going to touch on it today as far as reading the passage, but you can see later on that Joshua made a mistake and it it cost lives and it was painful. But we as God's people, as we look at God's leadership in our lives We need to recognize that God does lead in our lives. And he uses imperfect leaders in our lives. Pretty much much everybody here is going to have some examples of poor leadership in their lives. But my application for us is, is that God does lead in your life. And every one of us can trace God's leadership in our lives back to something or someone. And probably multiple somethings and multiple someones. And that is essential as we are on our journey to the promised destination. We need to recognize that God is leading in our lives and he's working through imperfect leadership in our lives. I think that's important for there's there's a there's an attitude in our country that is very, very hasty to just destroy, um, malign, criticize, and just gruesomely tear up leadership in our lives. Now, there is a place to hold bad leadership accountable. But we need to recognize God's hand as he's leading us through the complicated process of our life the struggles of our own sin, the sins of others, the conflicts of nations, and all that God is leading us to our promised destination. The next part of our key point today is number three, the Lord leads his people. 
his people. There's major characters here in the narrative of Joshua. We looked at the Lord, we looked at Joshua, and now we're going to look at the people. (coughs) And we're going to look at Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 16. And um, you're going to see that it mentions the Lord and it mentions Joshua. And they answered Joshua, All that we have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. There is this miracle that we've seen in the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, of God bringing his people together and now bringing them to the promised destination, in this case the promised land of Canaan. But all along this time as the Lord is leading his people, the people have a role to obey. And we see that here in the text that we just read, the commitment to obey. So let me ask you an obvious but an important question. Are you an obedient Christian? Are you an obedient Christian? I expect a question like that brings sparks up a lot of thoughts. Sometimes rationalizing things, sometimes things that you're struggling with. It just it just brings up a whole lot inside of us. I mean, I don't want to be too simplistic here. And that's why I am going to rely on the Holy Spirit. Ask yourself the question, are you an obedient Christian, a Christian? And then let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. I've mentioned the theme of covenant a lot because it really does come up a lot in our Old Testament scriptures. And it really shows up throughout the whole Bible, but quite a bit more in the Old Testament. And when we talk about being his people, we must talk about covenant. After all, we are in the new covenant, the New Testament. Joshua has two covenant renewal passages. And we talked about covenant renewal last week as the theme of Deuteronomy. It's not the theme of Joshua, but it is present. And the first one we're going to look at is in Joshua chapter 8. And we're going to read the verses here in a minute. Joshua chapter 8, starting in verse 30. And then after that, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 24. In Joshua chapter 28, there is a there is a, a time where it's a kind of a resolve and the people are starting to divide up the land. And so as they're recognizing what God has done by bringing them to occupy the land of Canaan, they spend time in a special renewal ceremony. And then decades later, as Joshua is an old man, he's getting ready to die and he's concluding his leadership. Um, that's in Joshua 24. And they have another special solemn ceremony where they renew the covenant. 
But for now, let's look at Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8 and verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, it's pretty impressive here, don't miss this. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. They, they don't have iPads. They don't have printers. They don't have, you don't even dot matrix, you know, before you had to peel off the sides of this paper. Those of you who are a little older, you know, they don't have any of that. They didn't, they didn't have a printing press. They didn't have movable type. So here, in the presence of the people, he has an act of acknowledging God's law, his truth, the truth of the covenant, and he records it in front of the people. This is a solemn, special occasion. I don't know how they did that. I don't know if they sat down and watched for a long period. I'm not really sure. I'm not sure. You know, did he write down everything? Did he just write down the Ten Commandments? I'm, I'm really not sure on this. Maybe I could do a little bit more reading and see if there's any uh, more I could bring to the bear on this. But in general, he, here he is in front of everybody giving a sacred priority to God's truth in a special ceremony as they're renewing of what God had brought them into in a covenant relationship and also a celebration of his truth and what will guide them on into the future. And we're continuing on in Joshua chapter 8, verse 33 says, In all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, recognizing that there were some people that were not native Israelites that were in their midst. With their elders and officers and their judges stood on the opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded it the first to bless the people of Israel. Verse 34, And afterward he read the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, we see the blessings and the curses in Deuteronomy, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. So he must have recorded the whole law. As I read that now, I think I'm going to alter my original thing I said earlier. He must have wrote down the whole law. And the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. That was a special ceremony at the end of the main part of occupying the land, and they're getting ready to divvy it up. Now let's look at the end of Joshua's life and the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? And here's what we see hung in a lot of houses. But as for me, in my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. It's quite a long passage, and I want to make a couple clarifications. There is a difference here, because this is a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. So there are some particulars in there that don't have a direct application to our individual relationship with the Lord. But there are plenty of things in there that have a direct application. And if I confused you by saying that quick clarification, just come talk to me. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to dig into that this morning. The big idea here is that his people are in covenant with him, in a covenant relationship with him. And whenever you have a covenant between two human beings, it's complicated. It's hard because we are frail, we are weak, we are sinners. But when you have God in one part of the covenant and us in the other, it is beautiful. It is wonderful. And we rely on him to overcome our weaknesses and his love and his mercy, his chesed, his loving kindness. One more thing. I'm just going to mention it in one sentence because I mentioned it in a few sentences in the book of Numbers. This is another thing if you want to talk to me about. I'd be glad to. One of the major themes in the book of Joshua is the matter of dealing with the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And there was a holy war. And as I mentioned in the book of Numbers, we do not celebrate holy war. It is an ugly reality. And it's not something that God uses us to do today. It is something special that God did with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It is not something that we expect to happen today. It's an ugly thing, but we also trust God's justice, his love, and his mercy. And his ways are beyond our comprehension. But be careful that you do not celebrate or get too excited about the ugliness of the holy war that happened here. It's a solemn thing. And remember that when Jesus returns, it's going to be a holy war when Jesus returns and he confronts the kingdom of darkness. It's an ugly thing, 
but we can rest in our just God to take care of that in a way that we cannot understand. Those who do not believe in the Bible or those who look for ways to criticize the Bible, they're going to use Joshua as one of the ways they do that because of the holy war that happens there. I'd be glad to talk with you more on an individual basis if you'd like. So finally, we're reaching the last part of our um, phrase here. Point number four, the Lord leads his people to the promised destination. Promised destination. The Israelites' occupation of the promised land of Canaan is a big theme of the book of Joshua. There's a parallel that goes along, or maybe not even a parallel. It's, it's weaved together along with the nation of Israel occupying the promised land of Canaan is the idea it was also the land of rest. Rest. The promised destination is a land of rest. Let's look at Joshua chapter 1 and verse 13. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. And then Joshua chapter 1, verse 15. And to the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession. And I'm going to stop there. In the New Testament, as the writer of Hebrews is writing to the New Covenant Hebrew Christians as they're trying to make sense of all their Hebrew heritage and the Old Testament instructions and now trying to relegate that into the New Covenant, the author of Hebrews reaches to this concept of rest and he applies several parts of the Old Testament, including Joshua, and he applies that spiritually to us in the New Covenant, this idea of rest. So Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, while the promise entering his rest still stands, let us fear any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. And he quotes here. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. By the way, Hebrews is rich. And there's a lot of things I could talk about, but I'm trying to just focus on this principle of rest and its spiritual application to us today in the New Covenant. Verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, here he's referring to Joshua, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So what he's saying there is, or whoever the author is, is saying that Joshua, you know, led them with God's leadership into the land of promise, the land of rest. But it wasn't an ultimate rest. There is still yet a future day of rest when we reach that promised land of the new creation. Someday, you and I will have complete and ultimate rest in the promised destination of the new creation. It goes on. For the sake of time, I'm just going to flip through them. And just want to make it clear. There is still a yet future day of rest for you and I. It has not arrived yet. And God, just like he did in Joshua, he's still doing it today. He is leading us, his people, to that place of rest. There is an already not yet tension throughout the whole Bible to where in some senses we've already experienced some of God's blessing. But there's more yet to come. And we talked about that even with the presence of God. The low point after the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were kicked out and there was an angel between them and the Garden of Eden and whichever way they turned, that sword followed them. So it was between them and the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, a sword, a low point. They used to have fellowship with God in the Garden. Now there is a sword between them and God's presence. And then we see progressively throughout the scriptures and how God's presence came with the nation of Israel and he dwelled among them in the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. And so it was heightened. And so his presence is starting to come closer and closer to them. And now in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and we are his temple. And so the, the presence of God is yet closer. And then someday we're going to be the new creation where we will have the presence of God living inside of us, but also we will be with him face to face in the new creation. And so there is this already not yet tension building all the way through the scriptures. Many of us have said in exasperation, can I just get some peace and quiet? And for you and I, as we speak of this in a spiritual way, there is a yearning for peace in our soul. There is a yearning for rest in our soul. And in this life, because we have this already not yet tension, there is the ability for us to get measures of peace and rest in our soul. Praise God for that. But there is the yearning for the ultimate day when we will have complete rest in that promised destination. And here's the thing, just as it did in Joshua, the Lord leads his people to the promised destination. So he's doing that for you and I. He is leading you to that promised destination. And this is something that we should praise God for what he is doing for us in our lives. I hope that just as, you know, 
I have some sunglasses that are they're more orange. You know, they cast an orange tint. And I hope here as we talk about, as we look at our broken lives, what's going on in our souls, what's going on around us, that we can have a tint of the beauty of the fact and the hope and the celebration that God is leading us to safety into the promised destination. And yes, there's, there's the struggles of this life, but everything should be gone through the lens of the beauty of what God is doing and leading us as his people to the place of rest, to the promised destination. So pulling it together, the Bible is the best story ever. And Joshua shows us how the Lord leads his people to the promised destination. So much goes on in our hearts as we struggle in this life with our sin, with our brokenness, with our hurt, But the storyline of Joshua, the key point of Joshua, shows us beautifully what God is doing. The beauty of God, his character and his works, how he is leading even an imperfect people in our lives, how we are his people and we should obey him, and how he is leading us to a place of rest. Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.